0: be reading out of Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving, with generosity. Leading, with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word, the anchor to truth we find in it, and for gifting this body to accomplish the work you've given us to do. You are worthy of all we are and all we have for all that you've given to us. Guide Pastor Jeff by your spirit as he brings your word. To us may we be responsive to apply what we learn in Jesus name amen amen you may be seated thank you Vic
1: we're going to be right there in that scripture so if you have your Bible you can turn there Romans 12 verses 2 through 8 today let me ask you a personal question please don't feel obligated to raise your hands on this by the way Because I don't want anybody to embarrass themselves. But when you post pictures of yourself on Instagram, do you use the perfect face filter? Or touch-up features on Facebook? The app TikTok has a skinny filter. Have you ever used that? Someone said, cool, it does. (laughs) Great. I'll be using it this afternoon. Appearance-altering features of these apps, also known as beauty filters, are common today. Snapchat, for example, reported that 90% of its users apply some kind of beautifying filter. And who wouldn't want rosier lips or whiter teeth or maybe large... I could use larger eyes. I'd like that. Or smoother and clearer skin. And that's not a bad instinct, by the way. I want to, first of all, I just want to pause right now and say to everyone in the room, thank you for showering this morning, brushing your teeth, and brushing your hair. It's okay to want to present yourself to the world as you should be. But researchers are beginning to see a link between these cosmetic enhancing apps and a downturn in cultural mental health, what they call body dysmorphia. Have you heard of this? For example, 94% of participants in one study said that they felt enormous psychological pressure to conform to their selfie-filtered image. And almost that same percentage said that the selfie image that they project on social media is seldom true of their lives. As a result, they don't feel very beautiful, and they don't feel that their lives are really that enviable. And this trend is really just symptomatic. It's superficial, but it's actually sim- symptomatic of a more widespread and much deeper problem in our society. And that is, what does it mean to be an authentic self? What, is it, what does it mean to be an authentic person? Who am I? What am I? And what on earth am I here for? And Paul, in this Romans text, is going to answer that human dilemma, The book of Romans has given us several kinds of grace. The first kind is salvation grace. From chapters 1 through 11, variously, he's told us about saving grace. Chapter 12, 1, and 2, and chapter 8, chapter 6, he's told us about sanctifying grace. And now he's going to begin a discussion about serving grace, the graces that the Lord Jesus Christ has put into our lives so that we may serve the body and build up the kingdom for the good of His Word and His glory. So our big idea today in the message is that the fully surrendered life is able to discern God's will in all things, three ways, moral behavior, uh, self-perception, and an aptitude for service to others. If you're following along in your outline, number one is the fully surrendered believer or body, uh, in body and mind can discern the will of God. By discerning between right and wrong, foolish and wise choices. I just want to back up for a second and go back to verse 2. We covered it last week, but I want to cover it again, quickly. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this age, but be transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to discern what the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is. Don't you take comfort in knowing that God's will for your life is good and not evil? and that it's pleasing, it's not miserable, and that it's perfect. It doesn't lack anything for you. And so last week we said that a fully surrendered body life coincides with or really begins with a mental life that is renewed in God's Word, the Bible. But time and, and exposure to God's Word, it doesn't just correct happiness. What we think, it corrects how we think, and not just what we think about the Word, but what we think about our past lives, before Christ, what we desired. And we come to see that our former way of life was miserable and ignorant and utterly unproductive. Look at how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. He says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, now that's a military metaphor, which requires countless hours and drills to perfect. He says, be sober-minded. If you've ever had the misfortune of seeing a drunk person in a bar fight, then you know that a person who is inebriated does not have an accurate self-assessment of their capacities. (laughs) And he says, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that's what it means to think soberly about life, whatever else comes to your doorstep, whatever else comes into your life. Listen, that's what we set our hope on. That's what our, our, the hope of our lives is ultimately set on, Jesus Christ bringing to us the very grace that he has promised to bring us when he comes in all of his glory. And he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Formerly, we were ignorant of Christ, and we were ignorant of the way of righteousness. He says, don't be conformed to those desires. But as one who is called, you is holy. You are also to be holy in all of your conduct, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. So ultimately, our goal is not just to do what God tells us to do. Ultimately, our goal is to be like a God, right? Right? to value what he values, to love what he loves, to do what we see him doing. Jesus said, I don't do anything except I see the Father do it. And this is why Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God. I had the chance uh, to take my sons back to my boyhood home in Goochland, Virginia, Goochland County, Virginia, last May. Years ago when I graduated from high school, many years ago, I left that place and I shook it off. I shook the dust off my feet. I moved west to Seattle and I never looked back and I never wanted to go back. I mentioned a a few months back that, uh, before, that I had an interesting experience when I drove up to my old house. It's still there in Goochland and I, I drove my boys up to the house and I wanted them to see the old home in the country and I expected something that I did not expect to experience. Or I, I experienced something that I did not expect. I expected to feel a sense of loathing for all the trauma and loss I associated with that place, but instead I had a very different encounter. Instead, what happened to me is I was released from all of that, and God just washed it all away, and it felt like a baptism. I drove out of Goochland County, Virginia, feeling like I had been feeling like I had been baptized, washed clean of all of it. And as I drove up that driveway, I could release it and just let it go. But what I didn't tell you is about all of the good memories that came flooding back into my mind, sitting there in the driveway, looking at the places where my brother and I, where we used to play, where we used to do crazy stuff. And all those memories also came flooding back. And we spent our summers wearing cut-off shorts, no shoes, no shirt, no problem, We spent our summer days swimming in the creek and catching leeches, watching them fry on the front porch in the hot Virginia sun. That's what boys do. Exploring the woods behind our house, shooting at birds and bottles with BB guns, talking about all the girls, all the girlfriends we were going to get catching fireflies in jars, filling up jars with fireflies in the front yard at night, and playing endless backyard football games with our neighbors till it was so dark you couldn't see the football anymore. And here's a pro tip. Once you start to catch the ball with your face, it's time to go in. And most of all, last but not least, the memory that came flooding back into my mind that I cherish so much, are the memories of the relentless drills of country kung fu. (laughs) Inspired by watching kung fu marathons on WRLH channel 35 starting at 6 p.m. till midnight every Friday night. (laughs) My brother and I were so inspired and we contrived all kinds of kung fu training methods. Backyard kung fu, we just call it country fu, right? And this involved dodging bricks and other objects. Like lawn darts while blindfolded. It involved catching arrows midair. They were the practice tips, not the broad tips. We weren't stupid. It involved laying on our backs and shooting arrows straight into the sky and just waiting there, not flinching with courage as they came back to the earth somewhere near us. Oh, how stupid. And at any moment, my brother and my friends would test each other with a random punch to the face to see if we were ready, to see if we had developed the reflexes to block the shot. And of course, we never did. (laughs) And at the time, we thought it was the right way to train. But of course, it was ignorant and dangerous. And to say the least, it was crazy. And at the time we were preparing, we were getting ready. We thought we were getting ready, quickening our reflexes and stealing our minds for the big day, the big dance. When someone would inevitably cross us at school or at football practice or at the store or in the neighborhood, and we would be ready with a reflexive, automatic, just ready to destroy them with country food. Now, as a grown adult, I sat there in the driveway remembering that we used to do these things and how odd it would have been if I had thought to myself, you know, I think that is the right way to train. It's not. Because it conferred upon us no readiness for anything at all. It bestowed upon us no skills whatsoever And this is what Peter is saying. He says, in our former way of living before Christ, there was a way we thought was just right. We thought it was the right way to live. And and at that time, no one could have told us, hey, that's just ignorance. The things you desire, the things in this world that you're pursuing with all of your life and with all of your heart, it's going to take you nowhere. It's like smoke. It's like vapor between your fingers, disappearing between your hands. No one could tell us that. No one could tell us, listen, that stuff that you're focusing your entire life on is not going to prepare you to be ready for the big day when Christ returns to give grace and salvation to the people who have believed on his name and wrath and judgment to the people who have rejected him. And Both Peter and Paul tell us to focus our mental and bodily life On those activities that contribute to our transformation into the image and into the character and likeness of Jesus. A renewed mind in God's word can help us to discern between right and wrong, between good desires and evil desires, between wise and foolish living. I want to take some space to show you this in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. This is in verses 16 through 26. He says, I say, then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds. I don't know how hatreds are plural. Like, what does that mean? Various hatreds. Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything else you can think of that would go in this category. That's like that. He says, and I'm warning you about these things. As I warned you before, that those who practice such things, that is those people whose lives are controlled and characterized by this kind of behavior, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the law is not against such things. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us walk or keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So I want to make just two quick observations, big observations about that passage. Here we have a vice list of the flesh. And here we have a virtue list. We have two different lists. One of them is the works of the flesh, and one of these is the byproducts of a life in the Spirit. So I want to counsel you not to take the vice and the virtue list and just make a punch list out of it or create an Excel spreadsheet where you track your vices and your virtues over the week. Paul's really not intending for us to do that the reason for the list is to show us that it is out of the heart that grows whatever you put in the heart, whatever you've nourished the heart with. If the heart has been nourished in carnality and worldliness and the things of the world, then this is what is going to grow out of such a heart. And if the heart has been long nourished in the word and walking and step with the spirit, this is what is going to flower out of a heart that is filled with the word and filled with the spirit. And the second observation is that both the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit should be obvious. He says, works of the flesh, they're obvious. Now, if you are having a hard time distinguishing between the two, like you could read the flesh list, the works of the flesh list and say, I don't know about some of those. Some of those seem like a good idea to me. Like I think it's okay to gossip and, and, and factionalize the church. I think that's all right. I, th- I think it's okay to sleep around and shack up with people. I think these things, I think outbursts of anger at everyone around me, if they disagree with me, <laughs> then me just raining anger down on them, I think that's perfectly acceptable. Okay, if you're having trouble distinguishing what is a work of the flesh and a fruit of the spirit, that means you need to get in the word and get in the spirit. Let the spirit determine. Let the spirit guide you into the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So the fully surrendered believer, body and mind, can discern God's will, able able to distinguish between right and wrong, the wise and foolish, choices that either lead to actual readiness to receive Christ and His grace when He comes or to receive wrath and exclusion from the kingdom also. Number two, the fully surrendered believer discern the will of God through an accurate self-assessment. You have to think about yourself. Nobody walks around just thinking about God all the time. I don't. I think about myself every day. The key is not whether or not you think about yourself. The key is, are you thinking about yourself rightly? Are we thinking about ourselves in accordance with what God says? Look at verse 3. He says, where by the grace given to me, I tell everyone a among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, you should think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, the word think here, Paul uses it four times. It probably only appears three times in your translation, but he uses it four times in one verse. And it is the word phraneo. It's the word phraneo. Uses this word twice. It means to develop an attitude based on deliberate thought, it's the formation of an opinion to give careful consideration to a matter. That's just what it means. It means to think about something. Now, it's the same word that he uses here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, your attitude, phreneo, should be that of Christ, who humbled himself and gave himself for us. That should be our attitude. The second form of the word here is the word hyperphroneo hyperfraneo. And this word is a combination of two words, the word hyper, or hyper, and the word franeo, or franeo, to think of oneself in an inflated, grandiose way that is out of sync with reality. Have you ever met someone like this? Every conversation you have with them, is like, oh, (laughs) hyperfraneo. This person's inflated self-image is not in touch with who they actually are and everyone seems to know it but them. And he says, don't think of yourself this way. Don't think of yourself with this inflated grandiosity. The next word is sophroneo. This is also a combination of two words. It's a compound term. And it comes from the Greek word sophia. The word sophia in Greek means wisdom, means prudence, and again, phroneo. So it means to think with sound or in a sane manner, prudent, reasonable, sensible in thought. And so he says, this is what's preferable. The way you're supposed to think is you're supposed to think wisely. You're supposed to think sensibly and sober-minded about yourself. In his thought-provoking book, Strange New World, which the pastors and myself will be going through on our podcast starting on Mondays. I I believe it's the next week. um, We're gonna be putting that on our website. You can follow along. You can listen to our conversations. We're, We're gonna be discussing Carl Truman. Scholar and pastor Carl Truman's book, Strange New Worlds, or Strange New World. And what he does is he captures how academics and activists have transformed how the Western culture has come to define human identity, which sparked the sexual revolution, which has opened the floodgates to radical individualism and individual self-expression. He notes several culprits in his book. The first one is the pursuit of the authentic self. Has anyone ever said this to you? I'm just being authentic. Really? (laughs) The pursuit of the authentic self. He defines this in today's strange new Western culture. The authentic self is not based on any intrinsic design nor external authority, but instead on the basis of inner feelings or inner desires. I'll say it again. The authentic self in this world is not based on any intrinsic design, any internal design, or any external authority, but instead on the basis of inner feelings and our desires. So the notion that value, meaning, purpose, identity, and function are externally conferred upon us by an external authority. It's bestowed upon us and confirmed in our biological design and the sexual codes or the the codes that attend our biological design. If you believe that, then in today's culture, you're just a heretic. I mean, it's it's the modern heresy. And so Truman notes that by contrast, the highest pursuit of the modern person is discovering their true inner authentic self, which is determined not by extrinsic authority, again, or confirmed by intrinsic design features. No, it is determined by how I feel about my life, how I feel about who I am, and what I desire mostly. What do you desire mostly? Well, that determines your identity. And this leads to the second problem in our culture, which is the expression of the authentic self. Well, I mean, if the authentic self can only be discovered by getting in touch with my truest feelings and deepest desires, then my highest aim is self-expression, wouldn't it be? On this view, my chief aim, my noblest pursuit in life is that the expression of myself would match how I really feel inside, who I really think I am inside. And this has led to the sexual revolution. And while we typically think in terms of the 1960s countercultural sexual revolution, this mindset has deep roots in the writings of Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, and is popularized in the writings of that sexual wanderer, Oscar Wilde. The sexual revolution is aptly named. Why? Because it is a culture wide insurgency, it is a mass revolt against the sexual norms reflected in natural law and commanded in the Bible. That's why it's called a revolution. It is the denial of a fundamental code, a biological code of sexual behavior that is codified in both the physical body and authoritative commands of Scripture. And this has resulted in what Truman calls the social imaginary, the person who thinks and acts and interacts according to the authority of their own personal imagination. Whatever they imagine themselves to be just is true, and you cannot controvert that. You can never question that. And so this radical individualism could not be more opposite of the godly and biblical vision of individuality and humanity that Paul here embraces and teaches and advocates. Not only that, but it is hyperfranial. It's arrogant. It's boastful. The boastful assertion that I am the decisive and final arbiter of all that is true about my identity raises me to the level of God himself. And there is no authority either external to me or in a written word or internally present in my body to tell me who and what I am and what purpose I was made for. And I'm here to tell you that our cultural hyperpherneo is bunk. And it's bonkers. I mean, it's not just false, it's madness. It has led to our culture praising that which is morally insane and then damning that which is morally sensible and reasonable. They would look at a list like I just read you in Galatians chapter 5 and flip it and say, the works of the flesh, are you denying me any of this that I want, that I'm entitled to? And so the fully surrendered believer, body and mind, can discern the will of God, what is right and what is wrong and can discern who and what they are, they can perform an accurate self-assessment based on what God says and God's design. Number three, the fully surrendered believer, body and mind, can discern the will of God with respect to individual contributions to the body. He says in verses four through eight, now as we have many parts in one body, that's a great analogy. Isn't that a great analogy? And all the parts do not have the same function. So your thumb obviously does not do what your eye does. So don't stick your thumb in your eye. <laughs> and in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Underline that. We're individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it in according proportion to one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, Teach. Of exhorting and exhortation, of giving with generosity, of leading with diligence, showing mercy, with cheerfulness. So if what Carl Truman outlines in his book, Strange New World, is true about our culture, and I think it is beyond the peradventure of a doubt that it is true, then what is the antidote to such a skewed and irrational view of the human self? Well, Paul gives us a biblical worldview of personhood. Contrary to the radical individualism that has gripped our culture today, we do not find our authentic selves and our feelings or our desires. Instead, it is grounded in God's creational design and His decree for our lives. I want to show you this. We are human image bearers made in the image of God. Where do you find that? First page of the Bible, Genesis 1, and He made them male and female in His image together. And we are designed to flourish in heteronormative, monogamous sexual relationships. This is so important to God that he gave us the marriage relationship as a sacred union. It's a sacred union. Now listen, if Darwin's story is true, and you are nothing more than the byproduct of eons of natural and undirected processes. If that story is true, then there really is no such thing as a human being. You're just matter in motion. That's all you are. There's nothing to ground your identity. There's nothing to tell you who and what you are and what purpose you were given for life. But God says in his word, I made you, I created you. And I created you for this purpose. Now, that sacred, sacral function that marriage plays in the human race points forward. We learn in Ephesians chapter 5 that it was always intended to be an illustration, a living, walking illustration of Christ and his bride, the church. And this is why in the book of Revelation so often it refers to the church as the bride of the slain lamb. Folks, marriage is sacred to God. It can't just be anything. And God, by design, has, is the one who determines what it is. And so what Paul does is he gives us a, a worldview that grounds marriage. It grounds it in God. It grounds it in the nature of Christ's relationship with his holy, purified, spotless church. And Paul also gives us a countercultural vision of human individuality. Hear me well. Paul says, individually, we are members of one another. Individuals, yes. But we exist for the good and the edification and the health of the greater body. Now, our individuality, when you become a Christian and you come into the church and you come into the body of Christ, you, your individuality is not just swallowed up and erased in some groupthink cult. That's why we don't require you all to wear the same uniforms this morning. <laughs> right? It's not groupthink, it's not a cult. Your individuality matters to God. God is the one who gave you the gifts that He gave you, God is the one who wired you in such a unique and distinctive way. There is no one else like you in the whole world. No one. So understand that God cares about your individuality, but your individuality was made and designed to bless the community. It was made like a part of your body to contribute to the whole. Now, if I walked over and cut your thumb off today, you might as well take that thumb and throw it in the trash because it would have no life on its own, none, any body part that is away from the whole, any body part that is cut off from the rest of it has no life in of itself, and God made us individual and unique so that we would contribute to the kingdom of God and to His family. First Corinthians 12, 27 says, now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. You're individual members of one body working together for the kingdom of God. Look at what he says in Ephesians 4, 16. He says, from him, Christ, the whole body, fitted and knitted together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the the proper working of each individual part. When each individual part knows what it's called to do, what you've been gifted to do, how God has wired you to do it, and is plugging into the family of God and contributing, that's God's plan." to grow the church. So contrary to the blasphemous and self-important hyperphrenia of our day, God designed us as individuals to discover and develop our uniqueness and distinctiveness. And not in some empty exercise in self-expression or self-realization or self-actualization, no, but for the good of the family. The entire body built up like a holy temple to Christ. Now next week, We're going to talk about what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4 about spiritual gifts. Have you ever wondered what in the world is he talking about when he talks about prophecy? What is he talking about when he talks about words of knowledge? Listen, there are a handful that he has here, but there's a lot more in 1 Corinthians 12, and they're way more exciting. They're way more spectacular. We're going to talk about those. We're going to talk about what the Bible means when it's talking about this stuff. I'm going to tell you next week how to discover and develop and deploy your spiritual gifts, but I'm going to answer three things, three things. I'm going to tell you why I am not a Pentecostal. I used to be. I'm going to tell you why I'm not a charismatic, though I certainly, certainly love my charismatic brothers, love them to death. And I'm going to tell you why I am a continuationist and I'm a partial cessationist. Now, some of those words, they sound a little odd to some of you. Just write it down. Next week, we're going to talk about that. I'm going to tell you why God has given us spiritual gifts in the life of the church. They're supposed to continue beyond the first century, but some of the stuff was left in the first century. And I'm going to help you see that next week. And I'm going to help you figure out how God has wired you, how God has made you and your spiritual gifts and gifted you to bless the life of the church. Are you excited? Man, I'm pumped. I, I already wrote next week's sermon. That's how excited I am. Not all of it, but a lot of it. <laughs> I was supposed to take a day off, but I didn't. Um, so let's recap by way of some questions that will help you to apply the message today. First question is, would you say that you can discriminate between moral and immoral behavior pretty well? wise and foolish choices? Have you renewed your mind in the Word and walking according and walking in step with the Spirit? Are you ready for action? Are you prepared with wise and sensible thinking to respond to the challenges that come in in your life? Number two, what would you say the works of the flesh, which lead to death and hell, would you say that those works are apparent to you? Is it it apparent to you that sleeping around is a work of the flesh and not a work of the Spirit, or cheating on your wife, or cheating on your spouse is a work of the flesh, not a work of the Spirit? Is that apparent to you? Or are you still debating over what is sinful and what is permissible, what is pure and lovely and praiseworthy versus what is unholy, unhealthy, and ultimately unproductive? Number three, do you have a biblical assessment of who and what you are? Do you believe what the Bible says you are? Are you able to discern yourself in light of the body, to discern yourself for the body? Can you do that? Well, if you can't today, if you would say no to any one of those questions, I would say that we're going to have pastors and elders down front after the service who can pray with you and help you through it, who can give you some instruction and pray with you and walk you through through that, okay? Would you not go that way? Come this way. If you're struggling with that today, no shame, come on up. I'm gonna pray for you and the band is gonna come back up and close our time with a song. Father, we thank you so much for giving us a reasonable, sensible vision for what a human being is. We thank you this morning that you have anchored our experience of the human life in your word and in your design for us. And so, Father, we glorify you. We thank you for that. And, Lord, would you help us today as we seek to walk in step with your spirit, as we seek to renew our minds in the word, would you help us to discriminate between moral and immoral behavior, between wise and foolish choices? If you're struggling with that right now, would you just confess it to the Lord? Say, Lord, I need help. I've struggled with this, and I just need the Holy Spirit intelligence when it comes to discernment. Lord, help me to to conform to a rational and sensible way of living. And Lord, we want to say that we want our flesh life, our body life, to be surrendered and offered to you as a living sacrifice and that we don't want to produce the fruits of the flesh, the works of the flesh. Would you help us do that? Would you help us whatever is pure and lovely and praiseworthy and holy? Would you help us to think on those things? Would you help us to ruminate and think about the things that you've given us? Lord, we commit ourselves to that as well. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer, you came in the door and you say, hey, that, that strange new world worldview that you articulated, that's the one I believe. I don't have a biblical worldview. I don't think about the human being the way God does. But I want to. And what you said this morning just sounds right. And I'm tired of floating around in midair, the midair of the world, with no foundation and no ground under their feet. And I commit myself right now to Jesus. I trust that God sent his one and only son to live a holy and righteous life for me, to die on a cross for me, and then to raise from the dead on the third day so that I would know eternal life. And I don't just want his salvation, I want his value system. And I pledge myself to it. I pledge my heart and my life to it. Would you do that right now? Just trust him for salvation. Just trust him for something, even if you don't understand all of it. And God, we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.